Good morning. Go ahead and grab a seat. Um, I haven't met all of you. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm excited to teach today. And if you brought a Bible or a device, we're going to be, you could choose. It's a choose your own adventure today. We'll either be in 1 Corinthians 3 or 1 John 2. I mean, I know where we're going. I'm just saying you could, you could pick which one you want to go to. We've been working, if you're kind of newish here, or maybe you're watching, you haven't ever watched before, we've been working through a series on how to grow as a disciple. It's just discipleship for normal people. It's basic blocking and tackling of what it means to grow as a disciple of Jesus. You cannot do a series like that without talking about evangelism. You can't. Um, Paul Reese, who's a theologian, he says this. He says, revival and evangelism, although closely linked, are not to be confounded Revival is an experience in the church. That's what Jonathan Edwards would call reinvigoration. Evangelism is an expression of the church. That would be what he would call propagation, right? So they agree with that. We don't really use the word propagation, but we use gospel extension. We say that a lot. It's the same thing. And we get it out of Matthew 28. There's a lot of passages in your Bible about how to extend the gospel or gospel propagation. The, 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 the pointy end of the spear, though, is usually going to be what we call as a church the Great Commission, which is in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's all people groups, all tribes, all cliques, all puddles of people, all ethnos, all different kinds of people baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you and I will be with you till the end of the age. It's a quintessential passage when it comes to mission and evangelism, but it's about making disciples. Part of growing as a disciple is making disciples. And not just making disciples, but it's not just fruit. It's fruit with seed in it, right, as we read in Genesis. It's making disciples who will make disciples who will also make disciple-making disciples. It's not circular as much as it compounds. And that's what, that's what the Great Commission is talking about. And I believe it. I stand up here today before you as the beneficiary of a disciple who was courageous and obedient and took a risk telling me about Jesus. And that guy that did it, he was the beneficiary of another person that was a disciple maker, who was the beneficiary of another person who was courageous and obedient, all the way back to Acts 1, all the way back to the early church. If you are, in fact, in Christ, if you're sitting here today or you're watching and you are a Christian, friends, our ancestry.com, it starts to look the same the further we go back into history. We all originate from the same church. It's fascinating when you think about it, really. But it's actually bigger than that. Because although people were create, or just courageous, my, my new life in Jesus is primarily the result of the work of God's spirit. Not man, God's spirit. People did declare and demonstrate the gospel to me in various ways, with various words, in various moments. Some of them having more of an effect than others, for sure. But all of it, in my life, the change was God's engine. It was his thoughtfulness, his power his choosing that did this in my life. We make disciples as a church by the sweat of our brow. We, we work hard. We're obedient. It takes courage. We do this, but it's the authority that is vested in Jesus, he says. 
who is with us till the very end of the age. And what this means about evangelism, which, and again, just to take a long word and make it simple, evangelism is just declaring the word of God, declaring the structured gospel of God, the good news of God for mankind through the person of Jesus who came to live, die, and live again. It's just as we carry that, it's evangelism, right? But it's a spiritual endeavor. Robert Coleman, who wrote a book that some of you have read, The Master Plan of Evangelism, He says this, it is only the Holy Spirit of God who enables one to carry on the redemptive mission of evangelism. Jesus was God in revelation, but the Spirit was God in operation. He was the agent of God actually affecting through men the eternal plans of salvation. In this light, evangelism was not interpreted as human undertaking, but as a divine project which had been going on from the beginning and would continue until God's promise was fulfilled. We actually see Robert Coleman saying some things because he took this right out of the Bible. Everything he just said comes straight out of 1 Corinthians 3. So if you turn to 1 Corinthians 3 and that's the passage you went with today, this is what it says. And this is Paul talking to a fragmented church that, to be honest, was becoming all thumbs with evangelism. Evangelism was a little bit of a a struggle for them and being... um, maybe partitioned off in, a, in a maybe more of a, a club way of I'm club this guy and another group saying, well, I'm club this guy. He has this to say, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. And then he says this, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. I love that. There's probably 10 sermons that could come out of that one passage right there. But this is why it matters for us today. If it is evangelism, a supernatural undertaking that actually operates through human agency, our courageous obedience, if that's the case, then prayer is where good evangelism begins. Not methods and techniques. Not methods and techniques. Not gimmicks, not programs, although some of those can be very helpful in certain times. It begins with prayer. I've read a ton of books on on evangelism and mission. It's what I went to school for. If there's a class or a program, I have been through it, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I've seen them all. And I've benefited from a lot of it. But disciple-making is impossible without God's move. Absolutely impossible. Disciple-making begins with prayer. Prayer. I think this might be why evangelism is so difficult for so many people. Right? There's a lot of reasons that we struggle with evangelism. But I think one of the key reasons it's difficult is because when we think of evangelism, we think of something mechanical obligatory, something that we need to check some boxes and have a certain kind of understanding before we even take our first step, before we even utter a word. In fact, I think some of us, we struggle with evangelism because it is shame-fueled. It's something that we must do, something that we are lousy at, something that we keep failing at, but we know we ought to be doing it. So we do it out of a sense of obligation. But prayer? Prayer's not really something that we put alongside evangelism. But there's so much to pray for. Got to pray for people in our orbit, right? People, uh, people we haven't even met yet, new interactions. Pray for courage, for clarity, for a deep burning desire to even tell the story of God, for patience. I mean, for instance, you'd, you'd be surprised how many people 
you share life with to different degrees in different places, you'd be surprised. We'll, we'll call them people that are in your orbit. I think that's the most effective way I picture it in my mind. I mean, all the way from the person that is your, bar- your Monday barista, it's always the same person all the time. You know their name because you see their name badge that they're wearing on their apron, but you don't know anything about them. They're in your orbit. They're spinning pretty far out, but they're in your orbit. All the way to that person that you might even see here or maybe you see in your neighborhood where you know their first name, but you can't quite remember their last name. You see them take their trash out at the same time. You wave at them. You say something about the weather. You go inside. They're also in your orbit, right? They spin around. All the way down to the person that you know pretty tightly, the person that you share a little bit more life with, maybe even your best friend. We have so many people in our orbit. In a room like this, thousands, not hundreds, thousands of people. Thousands of people that do not love Jesus, that do not adore, do not enjoy Jesus. Thousands spinning in our various orbits and various stages. Some of these relationships spin tightly around you. You know them well. In fact, they know you well, right? Could finish each other's sentences. Some relationships, like I said, they spin a little bit further out. You don't know their story. You don't know their thoughts on God or eternity. You don't know their deepest wound. You don't know their biggest fear. You barely know them. You bump into them in a forgettable moment, and then after a while, everyone just continues with their day. Little league parents, food servers, like I said, baristas, friends of friends, investment brokers, neighbors of neighbors, just people, people. You kind of recognize their face, but that's about it. So what do we do? We pray for them, all of them, all of them. We pray. We pray for God to awaken hearts. We ask for a deeper burden for them that our hearts see them differently. That when we see them, they're not just the Monday barista anymore. We actually see them differently. We ask for moments of significance. You see, evangelism, and we teach this in our class on mission, missional living. Evangelism and missional living, by the way, is not an exercise in adding things to an already bloated calendar. It's not. Everyone in here has a lot going on already. It is, however, refurbishing all of your normal patterns with gospel intentionality. It's seeing everybody differently. It's seeing your settings differently. It's seeing your moments differently, seeing your work differently, your play differently, everything differently. Evangelism is thoughtful beyond what we see with our naked eyes. It's being unchained from our calendar, unchained from our agenda, chained from the watch. It's investing where we're, let me just be frank, it's investing where you're likely to never see a return, okay? It's investing the gospel in people where you are likely to never see a return on that. I think that's a struggle for people. But we beg God for the courage that we're going to need to start awkward conversations. Beg God for the courage we're going to need to foster and develop those into relationships where maybe we know the last name now. And then a few weeks later, we know their kids' names. And then we start to learn after a year maybe what, what their deepest fear is, what wounded them the most, how they see God, what they think of the gospel, how they even heard that. We build. We ask God for opportunities. We ask God for the courage to risk ourselves. We ask God for the courage to follow up after an awkward conversation. Right? There's so much freedom that comes in healthy evangelism for a healthy disciple. Freedom comes to the disciple who understands that we're either sowing or watering but we're not closing the deal. I find this to be effective for people because I think we have it in our mind that we're supposed to be the one that closes the deal. That if you don't, quote unquote, lead someone to receive Jesus in your life, then you're just a bad evangelist. 
You just have it. And, 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 and I, I know in my days of campus ministry, it kind of just became a little bit of a badge. How many people have you led to see Jesus correctly? How many people have you saved? Such a heretical view of looking at evangelism. It's not even in the Bible. Who gets the growth? God gets the growth. God fashions the heart. God is the one that pulls a heart of stone out and puts a heart of flesh in. That's all God's work. God does that. And sometimes, friends, we get to see it. And when we do, it's something amazing, truly amazing to see that, right? Sometimes we're the last person to put a little bit of water in. Sometimes we're that. Out of 53 people that it was going to take to change somebody, we were number 53. Sometimes we get to see that, right? And it's awesome. It's, it's exciting. It's fascinating. But when we don't get to witness it in the moment, we can still invest hoping someday that down the line the investment culminates in God's great exchange of heart. Maybe you're number 38 out of 53 people. Congratulations and thank you for being a great evangelist. Thank you. Thank you for being courageous. Thank you for risking something. Because here's the thing, by the time they become a Christian, they're not going to remember your name, friend. That thing that took so much courage from you, that thing that took so much, oh, here it goes, I'm about to risk everything, they didn't see it that way. They, that, that heavy moment for you wasn't as heavy for them in the moment. They might not even be able to later on point back to that and say, that was a formative moment for my salvation. They might not even be able to see it. But it didn't stop the Holy Spirit from using it later on. It doesn't stop the Holy Spirit from being the Holy Spirit. In heaven one day, it will all be made clear. And we will see all the different investments that were made in our life. Dude, how cool will that be to see all 53 people or 110 people or 400 if you're that person, right? How cool will it be to see, look at all these people that invested and invested and invested. Man, point being, everyone who loves Jesus here today got to that place by an aggregate investment by a lot of courageous people, a lot of obedient people, relatives, neighbors, mentors, cringy pastors, whoever, you name it, spouses, those little tracks by the toilet in the gas station, right? It could be a million different things, but it's that, it's that totality of gospel moments, and a lot of them not delivered very well, imperfectly delivered, stuttered through, weird theology here or there, something like that, but somebody took a chance. Somebody took a chance. Your salvation is the result of a multitude of gospel moments, and I know how it is. <clears throat> it's hard for us to see this in this way because some of you, if you are in Christ, you'll be in this club over here where you can actually point to the calendar and say, it was that day at that place that I became radically born again. I know that's when it happened. I know, when it, I mean, I remember the sermon. I remember the moment. That was it. And it's, it's like you walked into a dark room and the lights were flipped on and instantly there was clarity and you could see clearly and you were changed. For others, and I would probably be in this club, right, it's as if you walked into a dark room and the dimmer was slowly turned up. And it was over time that you started to see more clearly until one day you get out of bed and you say to yourself, I think I'm a Christian. That was a pretty powerful sermon last night, and I responded, but was, was that it or was it a month ago? I mean, it's been kind of nice. I've been exploring Jesus and enjoying him more and more, and now I see my sin for what it is. And I'm pretty sure I'm a Christian, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to need to get baptized, and I need to tell the pastor and have a conversation with somebody in this church, but I couldn't really point to a calendar. That's fine. That's fine. The point is you didn't get there alone. Many people, God gets the increase. God gets the increase. There's freedom in knowing this. 
There's also freedom for the disciple that comes to the understanding that God's gospel is so powerful that absolutely anybody can get saved. Anybody and everybody. Anybody and everybody. Paul says this in Romans 1, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, everyone in your orbit, all the people in your orbit, even the scary ones, even the one that has the resting face that is just waiting for you to please for the love of everything holy, finish your sentence. Even the person that is so tattooed up, not with Christian tattoos, right, but maybe from ones they got in prison, right, that person, everybody, the skeptic, the person that mocks you, the person that looks as far from Christ as they could possibly be, every single person, everyone, everyone in your orbit, everyone you meet has a hungry soul. Everyone you meet is asking themselves when alone questions that terrify them. Everybody, everybody you meet has hopes for a life of value and no one you meet finds that lasting value without Jesus. In fact, they're going to recoil and reject the gospel that you bring to them, but they need to hear what you carry in your lungs, friends. They need to hear the gospel that you carry in your lungs. And as we imperfectly carry the gospel, God does what we cannot. He takes my incompetence and he merges it with his omnipotence and a new soul shows up. A new soul. Nothing is impossible in evangelism. Nothing It goes all the way to the ends of the earth. We read in Acts 13, Jesus saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation, where? To the ends of the earth. Ends of the earth is something we saw in the Great Commission. It's a phrase you're going to see a lot when it comes to evangelism. The ends of the earth begins for you at the end of your driveway, at the other end of the, the counter, the other end of the phone call. The ends of the earth begins for us in awkward conversations where there's a lot of risk you're pretty sure you're going to get rejected. It's very likely. The ends of the earth begins with botched scripture references where you're pretty sure you joined two passages and and magically made them one and you couldn't even point in the Bible where it came from, but you just know it's true though, right? It's true. I know it's true. Even those, the ends of the earth begins there. Yes, we make ourselves as ready as possible, but being as ready as possible for a beautiful evangelistic moment doesn't mean that it has to be delivered perfectly for it to have any effect to it. We read this in 1 Peter 3. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. It's, it's a different sermon altogether, but you are free to live a life that compels people to ask you for the hope that you live. To live a life that is so radically different that people just say, all right, What's the gig? What's the gig? You're just different. I got to ask. But you're free. You're free to sow. You're free to water. You're free to let God be God. You're free to trust that God's gospel is effective. You're free to be imperfect in your delivery. You're free to be rejected. We're free. Free. So the big question is, is why so silent? Why are we so silent as evangelists? Right? It's going to be different for different people. But why does it bring such shame as well? I mean, I said this last week, but I actually mean it more this week. This is not a place for condemnation to come up and ruin this moment for you, right? And it's, and it's already creeping in. It already is. I knew, listen, I knew from second two that condemnation was going to kind of walk in the room and sit on some shoulders in here, which is why some of you were like, oh, my 
gosh, how long is he? This is something I'm lousy at. So I'm going to listen to him talk about it for 32 minutes, 38 minutes, something like that. Don't judge me. I mean, is he really going to talk about this? It's just another thing I'm lousy at. Don't let that happen. Conviction is appropriate. Conviction is a gift of God out of his love to tell you that something you're doing or not doing needs to change. That's just conviction. That's something that's beautiful. We can lean into that. That's how we grow. Condemnation is something different. That is not something of God. That comes to say you are totally wrong. You're not a good fit for God. He's not a good fit for you. And in your failure, he wants distance from you. That's condemnation. If you're in Christ, there's no room for that anymore. Let that go. Leave it behind you. Your silence as an evangelist, all the times you could have said something and didn't, all those moments where it looked like there was a tender, a tender possibility around you, someone saying something like, God, if I just, somebody could just tell me how to change my life, I'd probably do it. And you just kind of sat there and thought, mm, well, I hope it goes well for you, you know? It, all of those times where you were radically against being evangelistic, God looks at you with no less affection than he did the moment before. No less affection. In fact, he loves you as much as he loves Billy Graham, who never wasted or squandered a moment like that, or Paul, or even his own son. His own son. Know that God works well with broken evangelists. I mean, he always works well with broken things and broken people, doesn't he? All this to say that if you've been silent, friend, that was yesterday. Let's repent and move on. That was yesterday. That's yesterday. We've got to move on and repent. And we don't just repent for being silent, by the way. That's easy. That's slow pitch right there. There's something bigger behind that that we must repent for. And we're going to find this in 1 John 2. And so 1 John 2, verse 15. I'm going to read it to you. If you're not there, it's okay. John says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Okay, interesting passage. It might seem like an odd place to look at evangelistic silence, but it's actually where you want to start. Because what we see here are basically some juxtaposed loves. John is not telling them to not care about creation or society or the people that fill it. He's not saying that at all. What he's addressing is the world's value system. The world has a value system. Things that the, the world, away from Christ, find precious, valuable, weighty, right? The thing is, is our hearts find the same things to be precious and valuable and weighty. I mean, if sin wasn't attractive, we wouldn't chase it, right? So we agree in some part, in our worst moments, that the world's values are valuable. And these things that shape the world end up shaping our lives too, shaping our decisions, stacking our priorities, informing how we think about the world. But the kingdom also has a value system. And it's not enslaving, it's liberating. And the more we adore God, the more we will rest in his value system. And what this means is, is we will be able to withstand the pressure from the values of the world. They just won't feel very precious to us. In other words, we will not only not love the world to the degree that we do love God. The world's value system becomes less attractive when God and his values become far more attractive to us. That's just the thermodynamics of First John right there. That's all that is. But what does this have to do with evangelism? Our silence is simply overvaluing mankind's approval. Our silence is just a deep love for this world's applause. 
It makes us quiet. When I'm silent, it doesn't promise that I'll be approved, but it might promise that I won't be rejected. That's second best. It, it promises that I can fly under the radar a little bit. Friends, listen, if being adored in this world is your ultimate goal, evangelism is just you and it's never going to fit you. It's always going to feel odd. It's always going to be hard. It's always going to be shame-induced. Because the gospel brings such uncomfortable news before it brings anything good. What it effectively is telling the person right across from you is that they're the problem. <laughs> hey, I got some good news for you. You got blood on your hands, friend. You're the problem. You're in the way. You need to change. You need to be rescued. That is going to breed rejection. And if it was breeding rejection 150 years ago, put your seatbelt on. So the question is, is does that sort of rejection rob everything from you or take nothing from you? That will be the distance between being an effective evangelistic disciple and one that is just never going to open up their mouth but continue to be silent. It's how we see that rejection. But this is where the gospel comes in and becomes such good news for us. Because God has actually given us approval that cannot be added to. And this is what we have to totally believe. He gives us an approval that the world just tries to imitate. It tries to manufacture but can never really keep up. And it's not wrong to want approval. It's not wrong to want to be loved and accepted. Right? I mean, God created us that way. He created us to crave those things. That's why we look for it so much. It's why we long for it so much. But God's adoption of you and me is what provides that approval that cannot be built anywhere else. It cannot be increased upon. When God brings us into a family we have no business being in, brings us around a banqueting table we shouldn't have a chair at, when God does this, he adds to us a position and a promise that cannot be added to, a wealth and a treasure that can't be added to. We're improved, cannot be proved anymore. The real sin for the silent evangelist is not just being silent, it's believing that none of that is true. It's believing that God is not enough. It's saying that God's values is there's substandard, that we need to adopt the worlds, that what God brings to you and me is totally insufficient. This is why we say here at Legacy all the time, the gospel is not just suitable for saving, it's suitable for sustaining us. The gospel does save us, effectively, as we've seen. But the gospel also sustains us. And it will be the gospel that makes us proficient in evangelism. It will be the gospel that makes us to a place that we enjoy evangelism. I'm not just talking about being good at it, friends. I'm talking about enjoying it. Enjoying that process of telling people the story of God. Jesus says, all authority has been given to him, vested in him, and he will be with you and me to the very, very end. And because of this, we can pray big. We can pray. We could be prayerful of it. We could pray big. One of my favorite books written by Leonard Ravenhill. It's called Why Revival Tarries. Um, man, if you want to read a book and get bruised up a little bit, this is one that needs to be on your shelf. It's, it is a convicting book. It's very small. And it's enough at the same time. And he says this, which is a very obvious statement. We cannot have big results from our small praying. The law of prayer is the law of harvest. So sparingly in prayer, reap sparingly. So bountifully in prayer, reap bountifully. The trouble is we are trying to get from our efforts what we never put into them. It starts with prayer. Good evangelism starts with prayer. So what do we do? We pray as if there are no limits. And then we risk everything as if there's nothing to lose. Risk everything as if there's no risk. 
right? We also tell the story of God with our broken words and our awkward moments. We tell the story of God with all the distractions that are spinning around, knowing that you're probably only going to get a third or a fifth or halfway into the discussion, and you'll probably have to follow up on it later because someone's going to get pulled away. A phone's going to ring. Someone's going to walk by. That's going to happen. That's going to happen. You're going to get asked questions that, friends, you're not going to have the answers to. Tell the story of Jesus, even when their face gets hard, even when they start to revolt, and you can see it. In these imperfect moments, imperfectly guarded with our imperfect words, tell the story of God. Do it to the best of your ability, and then let God do what only God can do. Let God take those words and just permeate them into that human heart. And friends, you might not ever see the result of it. You might not ever even get to see the result until we're in forever. Then maybe. I don't have a gift of evangelism. When we taught the spiritual gifts, we did look at evangelism a little bit. There is a, there is a gift of evangelism. Some people tend to be that person that just... They're the last one to water everywhere they go. They sneeze and people want to know what they have to do to get saved and they pray with them and they become Christians and we all look and we feel judged by it. That's a spiritual gift for a lot of people. I don't have it. But I have had more people come to know Jesus through my flawed gospel declarations where I had too much pride and I didn't get the right scripture down and it was broken up and I only said half of what I wanted to say and I walked away later on and had all these regrets about why I didn't say it a different way. I've seen more disciples made that way. I've seen awkward moments build great and solid disciples. So friends, be prepared to give the reason for the hope you have. Be prepared. That does not mean be perfect in your delivery. It does not mean that. Don't let that hold you back or you will never say a word to anyone ever. You'll never utter a word. And then I would say this, and this also deserves its own sermon or a class. Tell your own story. Tell your own story. When you tell the story of God, use your life as an illustration. Use your life. What did God do for you? What are you still excited about God doing in your life? How did it change you? What did it pull you out of? Where did it put your feet? Where did the love of God challenge you then? Hey, where does the love of God still challenge you? What are you still working through? What are the questions you still have? Bring your imperfect self into that testimony. Don't bring a picture where you've got everything worked out. They can see through that, and it's not even true. Tell your story. Because people will see the truth of the gospel in the scriptures, and your life will bear out this illustration for them that takes some of the mysticism away. I want you to consider, just we're about to, we're about to finish here and go into musical worship. But before we do, I just want you to think about some of the faces in your orbit, the people spinning the relationships. Some of them are probably pretty far from a moment where you would give the gospel. Some of them are right there, and they've been there, right? All of them are going to require risk. Rejection is certain. It's certain. Consider their role in your life. Consider how to advance that relationship in simple steps, how to build trust, how to build relationship. Consider how you can extend the gospel and pray. Pray for God to soften that heart. Pray for God to give you clarity, power, courage. Pray. Friends, we have so much to turn from, to repent from in this. I find myself even putting this together, just looking at the world's value system that I've actually picked up like a limp brush. That requires repentance. 
Turning from the bad belief that Jesus is not enough requires repentance. Turning from the need to be approved by all the lives that orbit us. Friends, Knoxville needs us to be a church that is gospel fluent. Gospel compelled. That's what Knoxville needs. It needs legacy to be a people who are risky and courageous and yet understand that as they water and they sow, they're really not risking anything at all, are they? We're free to exhaust ourselves in praying to God. We can wear him out with our prayers for revival and then we can spend ourselves investing in people that we might not ever even see an ROI in. And listen, if you're here and you're not sure where you're at with the Lord, maybe you don't know where you're at, the light switch has been dimming up and down, you don't know. You're not sure. Maybe something happened when you were a kid. Maybe you know for a fact you were nowhere close to the Lord. Let me just tell you this about revivals, just in case you read up about it, and I encourage you to do so. They come and go. (laughs) They're temporary. That's the thing. There's never been one that's lasted forever until the one that will last forever. Okay? That's the nature of them. But when you see them, or any Christian, be prepared to see things you don't understand and be prepared to see things that turn you off. Right? Because they do. That especially happens in revivals. This goes for the rest of us too. Even those of you who love Jesus, you will see weirdness. People are always going to be weirdos. You give them an opportunity to be a weirdo, they're going to do it. And so a revival comes, and if you look at the fringes, people are misbehaving, they're not being mature, but th- so it goes. None of us are all, all there either, right? I mean, all of us carry a, some sanctification needs in our life. And you're going to see that very, very tightly around revivals. You're going to see it. This is what Jonathan Edwards would say. Focus on the main thing. Just know that's going to happen. Focus on the main thing. God is changing lives. God is changing lives. He's doing it today. He's doing it in Knoxville. Do not pass this day up. The gospel for you, friend, is not that you did such a great job of building a solid record and then giving it to God so that he could rescue you. The good gospel is is that Jesus has built a solid record and he has given his life for you to save you. You came in broken. But you could leave satisfied for the first time in your life. You could be satisfied that God loves you despite all of your flaws and despite all of your regrets. You could be satisfied for the first time that peace is yours for eternity. The judgment passes over you. Satisfied that no longer is there, is there anything to prove or anyone to impress. You could let the applause of the world die down. Satisfied that Jesus will be with you till the ends of the earth forever. You could be satisfied in that. Don't let this day pass, friend. If that's you, by the way, I, I encourage you. We're not going to ask you to come down forward, but, but fill out a connect card and say, I'd like to talk to somebody about my salvation. Just write it down there. Put your information. Or before you leave, come up and talk to me, and we'll help you navigate that. We'll help you navigate that. Nobody wants to have questions about that before they get in the car. People want to know what's going on, and we want you to know what's going on. We'll do the best we can to walk beside you.